We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What do you think about the Laker team now? You follow the box scores of the games every day? Just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast, brought to you by the Blue Wire Podcasting Network. I'm Pete, joined as always by Darius and Mike. And since the last time we talked general NBA, we've seen a somewhat spectacular demise of a couple teams in Utah and Philly. And the... The centerpieces of the aftermath, right, uh, in terms of what happened and, and how, have been Rudy Gobert and Ben Simmons in particular. And I'm really curious to hear your, your guys' thoughts about them through the prism of how playoff basketball attacks weakness in ways that regular season does not. And the NBA has a long history of guys who have really thrived in the playoffs. And this can be too binary, right? Like he's great in the regular season, but not great in the playoffs. We do see guys kind of go out in similar ways, and both Gobert and Simmons have been rendered ineffective in certain ways in multiple playoff series that I think is worthy of a conversation. Let's start with Utah and Gobert. Mike, they're a team that since the beginning of the year, right? And this goes back even beyond this year where you've been very adamant that they are exactly this type of team, a team that can be very good in the regular season, but come playoff time, They'll be exposed for not being quite up to the level of play that's necessary to win a title and to really contend for one. And that came to fruition this year. What did you see that allowed for that distinction between the regular season and playoffs? Well, I just I felt like, Pete, we have seen this one before in Utah. And that's the thing that I had a hard time wrestling with throughout the regular season because the it seemed it, it seemed to me that certainly you guys aside, because I know that you guys recognize this, that a lot of folks just sort of forgot that once you get to the postseason, there is a limit to the places that Gobert can help you if the other team has the type of players to go small. And not every roster does. And I think, Pete, you may have even mentioned this on the previous podcast. Memphis, for example, wasn't really going to be able to punish Utah, and they weren't really going to be able to keep Gobert off because they didn't have enough all-around talent, and they weren't going to be able to play that way. But we knew that the Clippers were – uh, going to be able to we knew that when they match up with the Lakers that the Lakers were and I think so let's say that you missed the uh that you missed the Utah Jazz losing to Houston a couple of times in a row but with this very thing happening um where they essentially took advantage of Gobert and they didn't have an answer 
And now fast forward to him getting close to the max extension. And it's a little bit like take the Lakers situation with Drummond. So if if Drummond, if what he does or Marcus or whatever, if what they do doesn't match up with the other team going small, Lakers like, cool, we got Anthony Davis. Let's go small. Now, he's the absolute best possible person to do that with. But other teams, the Clippers, for example, have Marcus Morris. And so you can find usually a guy like that. Phoenix can do it. They can go really small if they want to with Jay Crowder. I think they prefer to do it with a Sharich or a Kaminsky. That's not great, but they can at least change styles some. You know, yeah, the they've Clippers. even used Torrey Craig at the five a bit in some small ball yeah. lineups these playoffs. Right. Yeah. So, so like they have something they can go to there. And, you know, the Jazz, I think it's the nature of Gobert's importance to and, and his ability to excel in the system that they have that gives them some of the regular season success. But they don't have that second pitch to go to when things get to a spot. And that's what happened. The Clippers went small in game three. They went four straight. I felt like that was something that, that the collective sort of basketball community should have seen coming a little bit for a little bit more easily. And Darius, maybe I'm missing something on that. Maybe, uh, but I, I do feel like this is what was going to happen uh, with at some point to Utah. I, I never said they couldn't make the conference semis. Never said they couldn't make the conference finals if the, if the matchups played out right. But I don't think you can win a title uh, the way that their team is constructed uh, given the modern NBA and how teams have learned how to go small with particularly since the Golden State Warriors and, and Draymond Green made that thing palatable. Well, I think that that's the key point within all of this is that there are now too many teams and enough of a sprinkling of those teams who are at the top of the league and sort of fashion themselves as contenders that do have this club in their bag and in some ways is a preferred approach to play they want to ultimately get to this lineup eventually or that type of lineup eventually in order to propel their their success forward i think the warriors are actually a perfect example of this pre-kd warriors i should say because those teams had andrew bogut and then even as a reserve big man they had a festus azili they always sort of had that club in their bag, too. And I think Utah's loss particularly signals a couple of different things. A, your very best players, your very best players, in which Gobert is one of their very best players, they need to have a baseline level of versatility in them, or you need to have schematic solutions that are going to hide them even as teams press on them consistently in in order to try to eliminate that player from the rotation or or minimize their ability to be that impact guy. The second point is you need to have that other pitch in your bag, right? With like a complement of other dudes who you are comfortable saying, I know you're one of our very best guys, go bear. Right. But in this specific matchup, you may be a 25 minute a game player. Right. Because for another 20 minutes or so, we're going to need to go in this other direction that we know we can win with. And I think one of the fatal flaws for Utah is that they did not build that in to their regular season plan is they doubled down on going big by using their mid-level exception on Derek Favors 
and they said, we're going to basically play the same style all of the time. And in a weird way, they were on the opposite end of the spectrum as like a Houston Rockets type team from last season that they said, we're going all in on being small. And if a team can counter that against us, then, hey, we may be out of luck, but we're going to keep pressing that button because we think we have the talent. The Jazz did the same thing with their system. A part of that main cog, Pete, was going to be that big man who is going to struggle against perimeter-oriented teams. The other thing, Pete, to introduce into this is I kind of kick it back to you. The NBA big man, and I think this is where the larger discussion can be had and why I mentioned some of the Laker bigs and we can think about what what DeAndre Ayton can do against the Clippers and how that might be different is that if you are that type of traditional big, you're you're a shot blocker, you're a rim runner, but you don't have some of the guard skills or you don't have the perimeter shooting skills, it's different from a big like Embiid or like Jokic. AD is obviously, again, the best of this. Or even if you want to try to take the guys like a Giannis who could defensively play the five, maybe even a Ben Simmons uh, or an Al Horford who can shoot threes, you got to have something else so that you can punish the team. And that's the problem with Gobert because if they're switching that ball screen, Pete, he's not getting the lob over the top all game. Even if Mike Conley and Donovan Mitchell are healthy the whole time on on the Clippers because they're going to be they're going to be just big enough. They're going to switch enough. And so, what is he going to do on offense? He has to kind of just sit there in the dunker spot, occasionally tip something in. So that's why, Pete, I'm curious your take on on the bigger basketball picture here, Gobert's place in it. Because to me, he's more of that DeAndre Jordan, JaVale McGee. He's just a he's just the supreme end of it. And you, but you can win if you've got the Jokic and B that have other weaknesses to cover up for because they're going to smash you too in some way on the offensive end. Yeah, that's exactly it. Is you can go about beating these small ball lineups in one of two ways is that you can have some perimeter versatility of which Anthony Davis is the pinnacle of Gobert is the pinnacle of the rim protecting big Anthony Davis is the pinnacle of the versatile big the guy who can stretch the floor at the five spot and whether it's as a shooter which can be hit and miss for him but it's not just that he's a shooter he's a great ball handler too and he can drive to the rim and hit all those wonderful floaters that are contorting off of one foot and so offensively he has that ability but he could also switch defensively that perimeter mobility is really essential on the defensive end but not every big guy is capable of doing that so how do the Embiid's and the Jokic's stay on the floor it's by punishing them on the other end of the floor if you go small right like Gobert's not the only guy that is going to struggle because what the Clippers were doing to Utah is they were running kind of odd ball screen actions where someone setting a screen for Reggie Jackson, say it's Paul George and or Marcus Morris, and you're not involving Rudy Gobert in that initial ball screen. But what you're doing is you're getting him to come over to help. And when you're spread out in a five-out offense, now there's been, I've seen some Utah uh, folks say, well, we didn't do a good job at the point of attack, which I do agree with. They could have been better in that respect. But in a five-out offense, you go five-out specifically to improve driving lanes. This is something that is a strength of that setup. And so you cannot be good at defending that if you're not good at rotating and recovering. And if you're able to render what was so interesting about that series to me, Darius, and the way that it concluded is they're so dependent upon being 
a good defensive team and Gobert being the reason that they're the good defensive team, yep. that that gets flipped on its head when you can go small and when you can spam that over and over again. They were doing the same thing over and over again. It's just there wasn't much that could be done to stop it because of that lack of defensive versatility. And I would argue that versatility is way more important on defense than offense because it's the offense that's dictating the terms. You can give the ball to Donovan Mitchell and run a high ball screen every play. You can't decide on defense. I'm going to have Rudy Gobert protect the rim on every play because the the offense is what's dictating how that goes. Yeah, so as Rudy Gobert kept having to basically defend a corner shooter, right? And that was the Clippers, basically that was their key plan, right? And then if the ball actually got to that shooter and that shooter was open, that shooter would shoot. And if that shooter was a little bit covered up by Gobert, then guess what? Now you got the switch you would have that Utah never wants to commit to in the first place, right? Because now Gobert is sort of on an island in space against a guy who wants to hunt him. Well, he's also closing out, right? So his momentum's going forward. Yeah. The the fundamental, like, why this works this way with really big guys is big guys have a hard time changing direction, right? Like, Gobert is sprinting toward that corner shooter when they decided to cover that corner shooter, right? And now... That's Terrence Mann, who his momentum's going one direction, Gobert's going the other. It's just hard for guys that big to shift, to go from – it takes a moment for them to stop their momentum and then get it moving in another direction. And by that time, Terrence Mann's dunking on him. Well, there's a reason why defensive linemen, you don't have them cover wide receivers, right? If exactly. I'm going to make a sports analogy, right? It's, it's, it's because that ability to sort of chop your feet and break down in a closeout and still be in position in order to turn your hips and slide, that's hard for big dudes. Like, it just is. Darius, you were definitely thinking about Lawrence Taylor and Jerry Rice, weren't you? <laughs> you, you wanted to drop those in, and you're like, uh, I don't know if I want Mike and Pete to have to you know, describe the uh, perhaps the best defensive lineman ever who played for the Giants in the 80s. Uh, linebacker, or linebacker. Clearly, yeah. Well, Linebacker, but like I, a lot of times he's up on the defensive line. But yeah, because he's rushing the quarterback, you know. Fair um, but yeah, uh, Jerry Rice, the greatest receiver of all time. Um, and now I've derailed us. But Darius, I, I did. I, I wasn't sure. Like, did you want? Were you going to go there, or were no, you? Are you going to drop a reference later for us? No, there's going to be some more obscure stuff, right? Lawrence okay, Taylor okay. and Jerry Rice. Those guys are too well known. Too well known. Think, be like, the, it's hey. got to be like Mordecai, Three Finger Brown, or Don. Dude, Hutton this is the point. Or, no, no, no. Too well known to us, old dudes, sure. but to a 20-year-old sure. who's listening to the pod, you know, in the Philippines, right? Um, <laughs> maybe maybe not as familiar. Sure, you know, that's shout right. Out to the, shout out to the Philippines. Uh, ridiculous oh, yeah. number Huge of Laker fans the, in the Philippines. Yeah, hey, absolutely. Man. I want to go there yeah. someday. We got to do some basketball stuff in the Philippines, man. That is like, yeah. a, that's a dream of mine. Make sure when you wear your number six jersey, it doesn't say James on the back. Make sure it says Clarkson. <laughs> All right? Like, right? like, if you're in the Philippines, <laughs> Yo, rep true. hard. Oh man! So I, the I, where I want to carry this discussion, if I could, guys, to or transition it is to back to Aiton, who I mentioned a bit ago. But he is now he's a bit of a hybrid between yeah. Gobert and and like Embiid, you know, where he can punt like he was punishing the Clippers more, and he made them go bigger. He so De Demarcus Cousins played 13 minutes, Avica Zubac played 18 minutes, so they played yeah. two bigs off the bench. Because Aiden, Pete, he just was presenting different problems from Gobert, and he's also was somehow able to 
to not be hurt quite as much for those swing, swing type threes. What did, what did you see in that one? And how do you think that plays out? I think there are two things going on there. I think the other element of that is that Ty Lue is similar to Vogel and that he's going to start with his baseline. Uh, I saw Justin Russo, who covers the Clippers, tweeted that like Rondo, Boogie, and who is the third player? I think Zoo is the third player that – 35% of their minutes overall have come in game ones. So what's happened in the first two series is they've started that way. And then like we saw with Vogel with the Lakers, they kind of morph into what they need to be against right. that particular team. That's I right. also think, too, that it was complicated by a very short turnaround yeah, oh yeah. for the Clippers between game seven and game or game six and game one. For them. Yeah, that was. And, I, I didn't like that scheduling. I'm okay with like the two days after if it's a game seven. That's kind of what you get for not closing it out earlier. But their turnaround was too quick. But they did start small, though. Is all I'm saying. Like, whereas yeah, took, for sure, it took him three games, and you so they started with Morris at the center, and then you know Aiden was eating inside early, and it was Ty Lue Then was like, you know what? Let me go to Zubats and or Cousins, and I I think that as the series evolve evolves, they go away from that more, right? And they just stay small. Hundred percent. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. No, hundred percent. And uh, but Aiton is more equipped to That's punish right. that because so on the offense he's a, he's better on his closeouts. I don't I don't think there's that much of a difference between Aiton and Gobert on the defensive end in this series. Phoenix is forcing the Clippers into a whole choice of whether they want Devin Booker and then hopefully you know Chris Paul to beat them or DeAndre Ayton, right? So if they go small, DeAndre Ayton can punish them in because he can. He has a much broader variety of shots around the rim, Darius, than Rudy Gobert does. He can catch, he can contort, he can like, you know, move his upper body one direction and then use his legs as a rudder. Gobert doesn't have that type of flexibility to be able to finish around the rim. And so you don't get punished on the other end by Gobert in the way that Aiton does. There's a dexterity that yeah. Aiton possesses. And I mean, look, I hate to go back to this and because Gobert has been in the league for for so long but there's a reason why so it's like not apples to apples here but there's a reason why Gobert in his draft was like the 27th or 28th pick in the draft and there's a reason why DeAndre Ayton went number one overall in the same draft that Luka Doncic and Trey Young and all of these sort of like hey these these sort of dudes they're like the future of the league but we still want to draft this big dude, right? Who's mobile and agile and big and physical. And these are still traits that matter in the NBA, right? And I'm going to repeat this until the day that I die, I'm sure, that the rim is still 10 feet high, right? And when the rim is still 10, 10 feet high, give me the dude who is closer to the rim just by standing up. Right. Because those dudes are going to matter in the big picture more in, like always and forever, like from George Mikan all the way to now and 10 years from now, 15 years from now, 20 years from now. Those guys are still going to matter. But it's that versatility that you spoke to, Pete, that you need to have a little bit more of that in in your game. And I actually think that Gobert's limitations deep, like defensively. Those didn't lose the Jazz the series, right? What lost the Jazz the series is that Gobert's offensive limitations meant that the Jazz were not getting back 
anything and punishing the Clippers in the same way that Aiton has been able, at least through one game, to punish the Clippers in ways that make you say, yeah, well, guess what? We feel comfortable staying small this entire time because that's what the Suns are doing. The Suns say, okay, you want to keep keep playing small? All right. How about when we get a possession where we get three shots at the basket or four shots at the basket because we're just getting offensive rebounds? Or how about these these times where it's a 6'6 guy rotating and trying to stop DeAndre Ayton finishing from four feet? Not that he's dunking, but just that he's got a little left-handed hook shot right right off the glass or or he's got a layup and it's just like you're not stopping those consistently this dude is seven foot seven foot one 265 or 70 pounds he's a big dude like I saw possessions against the Jazz where it's just like Patrick Beverly was switched on to Gobert and he like sort of got big in the post for a second and Utah's perimeter guys weren't even looking at him and Gobert then just sort of like shuffles his way to the dunker spot and it's like and if that's a Rondo or a Reggie Jackson or a Pat Beverly or a Luke Kennard, right? You can't, those guys can't do that against Anthony Davis. They can't do it against Joel Embiid. They can't do it against Jokic. They can't even do it against Valanchunas, right? Like there's a certain baseline of individual offensive competency that that Gobert is just below that level. He just is. And he is a force as a lob catcher. He is a force as a vertical spacer. And he is a defensive player of the year winner. But when against a switching defense, if you can't punish a 6-2 dude, then that's where I think the Jazz had to let go of the rope. It's because their offensive system is predicated on Gobert getting downhill and being able to suck in the defense. But if he can't suck in the defense against a 6'1 dude who is guarding him in, in isolation, then the utility of him plummets. And it's just hard to make up for that when there's defensive stuff that, that, are, that he's getting exposed to on the other end as well. So the idea of... A guy's utility plummeting is that applies to the defensive end as well with him. Whereas you're absolutely right with everything you said on the offensive end and how that's problematic. But the Clippers went small and then the then Utah gave up 120 plus on average in those four games. They did not defend well enough. And part of that is point of attack defense from their perimeter guys. But when you've got a defender who Draymond spoke to this about Rudy Gobert's defense, where you can put him in situations where he's uncomfortable. He's not awful. He's not terrible at closing out to the three-point line, especially relative to other bigs. But if you can put him over and over again in situations where he's a four-out-of-five defender, a five-out-of-five type defender, when the rest of the time you're relying on him being a nine-out-of-ten or a ten-out-of-ten defender, then that's something where everything plummets on the on the defensive end when that happens. So anyway, let's, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Eastern Conference and, and Philly's demise with uh, Ben Simmons in particular. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. 
Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So Mike Simmons is a bit of a different case than Gobert. He's the primary ball handler. He's, you know, primarily a perimeter player. But we saw, you know, he had the worst free throw percentage of, of in, in NBA history of anyone who's taken 70 or more play, uh, playoff free throw attempts. And a reticence to shoot, a reticence to, you know, not want to get contact. First, I would love to do in the summer, maybe we can get to some of this, but watch a few ep- uh, detail episodes with you guys because – they're amazing. They're basketball holy books in a lot of, in in my opinion. And Kobe did an, a, an episode on Ben Simmons, and this is several years back. That was fascinating. I don't want to. I want to be able to do it justice when we talk about it. So I don't want to get into the details. But Mike, shot making matters, and the complete absence of it in from a perimeter player in particular. I think we see really how that can make everything fall apart, and I think we saw that with Philly to a certain degree. Oh, there's no question about it. I, they, I know that one of the more popular stats that was going around around Twitter was Simmons's lack of any fourth quarter field goal attempts. I think maybe he had two in one of the earlier games, and then it was basically zilch for the rest of the series. He went three for three, Mike, over the course of a seven-game series on fourth quarter Crazy. field goals. And he he went two for two in one game and I think one for one in, in another game. And I think those were all in the first three games of the series. So I don't think in the last four games of the series he attempted a fourth quarter field, field right. goal. Right. I of, may be wrong about that, but that's what it is. Yeah, that's what it is. And it's it, and whatever, the, even if that's off by one or two attempts, like that's, we get the point, right? Uh, he was terrified of shooting in the fourth quarter. And I don't want to, okay, may, maybe I don't need to say terrified, but he was certainly not going to do it. And it was for a mix of reasons. One, because he can't shoot from the perimeter. Uh, two, because Atlanta was pretty did a pretty good job of walling off the rim. And then three, he really, really didn't want to get fouled. And his free throw percentage, so 34% in, uh, in this postseason. Last postseason, Simmons was at 60%. And then two postseasons ago, or actually three, because they missed it one year um, in 2020, he was 70%. And to see the free throw percentage uh, go so down so fast is part of it. And then kind of to Pete's point earlier, even if you take the fourth quarter situation aside, he only say, he's only taking eight shots a game. And they're basically layups. And those are the ones that he's going to take. A lot of it's in transition. And that type of player, I'm – 
I don't think that's fully him. I, I do think there's another Ben Simmons in there. We've seen it when Embiid sits, when he's just able to play more of a free-flowing game. In the postseason, though, it's like it's what his lack of certain skills and lack of development over over the uh, the years that's going to be a problem again. But I just think that a change of scenery, it's hard to find almost anybody you would think in Philly that isn't just on the trade machine right now trying to figure out what they can do. And you know, part of it is just thinking of if this if they had thought like that was part of the Harden impetus, right? That trade obviously didn't work out. But how about just keeping Jimmy Butler? And with what like with what that was. And then at the time with Simmons's trade value so high and we get why they couldn't have bailed on it, that it's just there's so much going into it. And the bottom line is they are they lost to an Atlanta team that uh, had a coach fired in the middle of the season because they were just struggling that much. And they've they've been hot. Give them credit. Uh, Trey Young has won me over in in a lot of ways. But uh, to keep it Pete on Simmons and go back to you on this, I, I also think that just the dynamic between he and Embiid on the court and how much that shrinks things sort of for both of them is a big factor and and one that not only played out against Atlanta, but is going to play out moving forward. Yeah, very much so. I, I don't think their skill sets are particularly complementary. I think that the best version of Ben Simmons is in a five out type of situation. And while Joel Embiid can hit those threes, it's similar to AD in that that is that's the side dish and that's third or fourth on the list of how Joel Embiid can beat you. And I think that Simmons would best suit a drive and kick type of, you know, partner and, and Embiid could, you know, with a shooter, a ball screen guy would be very much a, you know, a guy who could hit pull-ups off of ball screens. And that's the thing, Darius, is so much of these playoffs have been like, oh, it's just, it's the shot making, right? Like as simple as that sounds, there are so many of these really high quality perimeter guys. And one of the reasons I've always been skeptical about this Philly team since Butler left is that they don't have one of those guys. The closest is Tobias Harris, who's a very good offensive player, but he's not that upper tier type of shot maker, specifically out on the perimeter, right? Off of a pull-up jumper, off of a ball screen. You've got a guy like Seth Curry, who is great on offense in this series. But as we talked about in yesterday's show about the importance of shooting, when you make that type of decision, you find yourself in situations where Kevin Herter is scoring 27 points because they're just hunting Seth Curry over and over again, right? So there's that balance, but I think Philly is missing the most important ingredient, which is guys who can make shots from the perimeter at a really high level. Yeah, I I, I mean, so here's the thing with Simmons. Mike, very early on, you said that I think that they're still a really good player in Ben Simmons, and so do I. The interesting thing about Simmons... And I think this is true about a lot of all-star level players. He came close or made All-NBA last season. He helps you in a variety of ways. And this comes back to, in some ways, the Gobert discussion. When you have the types of limitations that Simmons does, there are concessions that you need to make in order to try to optimize that player. I don't want to minimize Simmons' weaknesses within this, but Philly has not done that. And one of the reasons why they haven't done that is because they have a player on their team who is better than him. That's right. Who's, who kind of gets in the way of doing the things that they need to, if, if you're just looking at through the prism of what maximizes Ben Simmons, which you shouldn't do because you should maximize the better player. You should be optimizing Joel Embiid. That said, when you have a player who's as good as Simmons and can do some of the things that Simmons can do, I would argue that having Embiid operate as sort of like outside of this picture 
for a second. There is still, I feel like, a lot of stuff that Philly could have been doing besides just telling Ben Simmons, go stand in the dunker spot. I feel like there are a bunch of simultaneous truths about a player like Ben Simmons. And one of the things I think about in relationship to player performance isn't just what skills do they have, what skills do do they not, and what can they do with those and and what can't they do and let's build around that because there is a psychological aspect to this and and mike you you hinted at this with like the free throw stuff but it also comes down to like for all the like we believe in you ben simmons stuff if you really believe in him then maybe don't just tell him to go stand in the dunker spot the entire time i think that there's more collective blame for what happened in Philly besides just Ben Simmons. That said, Simmons' own individual weaknesses, they need to be catered to so much that I do think a change of scenery would make more sense for him. But it's it's tricky because he does help Philly and he does contribute to their identity, particularly as a defensive team. So I find myself like straddling the fence a little bit more with Ben Simmons than I think is popular in the aftermath of their loss at this point. While all of that is true, there's nothing stopping him from developing just certain basic moves as a scorer that is not dependent upon a team, a jump hook over either shoulder, the ability to hit a floater in the lane. Mike, there's there are certain basketball skills that transcend what is happening around you, right? Like the ability to make certain fairly basic shots that even in these far less than optimized circumstances, I think there's a very interesting conversation to be had around what would be best for Simmons, what situation like that. I think the criticism around like, you got to be able to just execute certain basic moves at the NBA level, no matter how talented that you are. And this is a case where I find myself in often where I think you're both right, basically. And the mental is connected to the physical things that you were just bringing up, Pete. And the role that he feels he's in, whether it's where he stands on the court or how much he has the basketball or how much the team caters to Embiid, whatever it is, whatever it is there, it's got him in a certain mindset that he's just going to do certain things. And we know that he can do more, which is why I think it's a little bit of a different situation from Gobert, where he's just Gobert is in the box that he is. He is who he is. He is who he is. Mm -hmm. Like you're not going to, you can't just make Rudy Gobert suddenly into a small ball uh, perimeter five. Like you can't, you can't really develop even the kind of interior game and feel that DeAndre Ayton has, who's a young player and still needs to get better. A lot of that. You certainly can't have him just transition to the guard skills that AD picked up as a guard while he was growing up in Chicago. Before, So uh, he is who he is. Simmons could be optimized better, not just on that team, but somewhere else with personnel around him. So, And, and that to me is a difference. But the way that he was playing in this series um, was to me clearly the thing that killed them. And I also think Tobias Harris has to take some account here. You know, he had a better regular season, but some of the, the issues that he's had in postseasons and seasons past came to bear once again, where all of a sudden you're looking out and like the only reason that they won game six uh, was like they finally in in a rookie in Maxi were able to find a guard who could come in and just make some plays like bang a three you know he took advantage of Lou Williams in some certain situations like like they need that was a, and then the other game they won was Shake Milton early in the series yeah and th- th- that's not 
uh, that's not at this point in their careers, right? High level of, of an, enough of guard play that you need uh, to balance out everything else and all of the defense. And then I also thought they missed Danny Green. Uh, I'm sure Pete wants to get into that debate with Darius and myself once again. You know what? Let's skip it. Let's skip that one. We did a whole pod about it. You can go back into the archives uh, and find it. And Pete, the the last thing, because I don't want to forget this, you tweeted something, I believe, about Gobert's uh, defense. And was was what was the original thing that got me going on the Hollinger point? Was it picking Utah to win the title or something? Or what was what was it? Gobert that, is second. And, yeah, no, Utah's well, a legit contender. But I'm saying when we did our preseason pod about the supporting cast and all that kind of stuff. There was some kind of point made. I don't know. Maybe it was our, our friend David Locke. I don't know. But they, it was like that was the that was the discussion we had at the time. And then I saw your tweet and it made me laugh. Uh, but, yeah, I just wanted to put that on the record. In closing the loop on Simmons, particularly, I want to get, just briefly touch again on the point about, uh, like, accommodating him. I like Ben Simmons. I think he can help you win. I actually think he can help you win in in the playoffs as well. And I think that... Putting everything on him is probably wrong. Absolving him is obviously wrong. And there is this area in the middle where I think things need to live a little bit more for him and for whoever is his head coach. He does need to take his skill development seriously. He does need to sort of get out of the mindset of this is who he is. There is a trajectory shift that needs to happen for him, and it needs to be self-prescribed. One of the reasons why I believe in Ben Simmons is because I think that he's talented enough to change that trajectory. And he's young enough that it still makes sense for him to sort of keep adding to to his game. Like he's got a teammate in Seth Curry who I feel like has added a little bit to his game every season, right? Where Curry was a fringe NBA guy for a while. And there's a bunch of teams that like outright cut him and he couldn't stick in a variety of places and then in this Philly series against the Hawks he was maybe consistently maybe their second best player right their third maybe oscillating between him and Tobias Harris there is growth to be made when you're 23 24 25 26 years old the fact that he hasn't improved year by year though mm-hmm. like that is a concern in its own right because the really and that's great the trajectory right literally do improve every year so so i'm not i we i think we agree but i just want to point out there is a difference between him and the guys that have already been doing that a part of me feels like again and i hate to hammer this this point again but i think some of that is clearly on him and some of that i feel like is clearly organizational structure and what he sort of viewed as and sort of being propped up as both internally and externally, right? Like all season long, Doc Rivers is basically defending Ben Simmons to everyone. Is he saying that publicly and saying something different privately? Or are the private messages basically the same as the public messages? Because it wasn't until in the aftermath of their game seven defeat that there was any sort of public acknowledgement that the state of his game currently is not what it needs to be. And maybe that will help serve Simmons as a wake up call. Maybe like maybe it won't, but he's got too much talent to languish in this area where he is right now. 
But I mean, it's going to take work. I still believe in Simmons, but we'll see if I could say the same thing a year from now or two years from now, because his limitations did greatly contribute to Philly getting ousted in the second round when they were a real title contender. And that's what's so fascinating about the playoffs is seeing how limitations really get amplified in ways that they can't in the regular season. And I think Gobert and Simmons represent some someone who is pretty much in stone at this point versus someone who can be more, but there's a lot that goes into improving that. So anyway, really interesting discussion, guys. Um, we'll continue tomorrow with a, a Lakers show, but until then, you've been listening to Laker Film Room Podcast. We'll catch you guys next time. James has got it in low to McHale. McHale wants to turn his double team. Just pass out of front, broken up by Worthy. Tip to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. There's Magic, got it. Magic fires. It's good. The Lakers win the game. The Lakers win the game. Three seconds left. That next to the winner. It's on the way. Kobe Bryant, 48 points, 16 rebounds. With his eighth block shot, the He's an NBA Finals record. A lot of Laker fans sticking around for this. You're seeing something that's very rare indeed. A Laker to get MVP chance right, in, Boston. in Boston. Of all places. Are you kidding me? Kobe. Hard to believe. Are you kidding me? Unreal. Are you kidding me? Lakers looking to push. Bryant spinning in the lane. Back for Gasol. Pretty pass. And it's back to a three-point game. Kobe Bryant picked up by Bell. There's the score. move. Two, one, miss it. It's over. Shot clock out of five. Bryant. Yes. And that was a little tough to Albert Gentry. Add insult to injury, Kobe. I mean, what a shot. I mean, you can't defend that. Are you kidding me? 2.1 seconds remaining. Denver a foul to give. Jokic. Trying to disrupt Rondo, he puts it in. Here's Davis, 4-3 in the win. Oh, it's good! Anthony Davis has won it for the Lakers! James again. Oh, he hits another one. LeBron James putting together a closing quarter against the Nuggets. This historic 2020 NBA championship belongs to the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers conquer the bubble, and banner number 17 will soon hang in the rafters.